I tried to translate that into Nerdus Maximus. Mm, no, don't do that. <laughs> Welcome to the dirt. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we are reaching far, far back into history's refrigerator. We're going to tell some archaeology food stories. We are going to talk about bog butter and ancient honey. Doesn't that sound delicious? Mm. <laughs> okay, so uh, bog butter. We're going to start with some buried treasure. Um oh sort of treasure, a thing that was buried and then found, and I treasure okay. it, it's butter. Um, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe it's no longer butter. Um, <laughs> but, twist, it still is. It still is, so let's talk about it. In 2016, really recently, yeah, a man named Jack Conway was cutting turf in County Meath, Ireland. Is that a euphemism? Cutting turf? No. Yeah, I wish. Um, mind out of the gutter, listeners. Cutting turf means he was cutting chunks of peat out of a peat bog to be dried out and used as fuel. So peat is essentially vegetation that has grown and died repeatedly, so it layers on top of itself and becomes this very thick layer uh, of sort of wet, boggy, vegetable matter that once it's dried out is surprisingly good to burn as fuel. So is it like compost? It is like, yeah, it's like naturally occurring composition, not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. It's like vaguely decomposed grasses and, and, and ground plants, um, that grows in a very, very thick layer. Um, it keeps growing on top of itself and then dying down. So anyway, uh, Jack Conway was cutting peat to then dry out and use as fuel, and he found a 22-pound, so the size of a large baby, um, no, ten, met a baby? 10 kilograms. Like, that's, that's like two and a half babies. Anyway, it was a lump of butter that was 22 pounds, and it had been stored in the bog uh, where he was cutting turf. And when he brought it to researchers at the Cavan Museum, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, Researchers estimated that the butter, which had the consistency of cheese, was over 2,000 years old. Mm. <laughs> okay, cool. So, all right. bog butter is a real recurring thing in Ireland. This Jack Conway's um, treasure find was not the first uh, or last of, of these finds. So, Smithsonian Magazine has reported on a 3,000-year-old, three-foot-wide barrel Stuffed with 77 pounds of bog butter <laughs> that was found in 2009. So much butter. And that's not even the oldest one. So, um, again, turf cutters, because this is, this is the area where the bog butter was stored and, and where it keeps being found, um, found a 5,000 year old wooden keg containing 100 pounds of butter in 2013. And, um, people have been finding bog butter for at least a couple hundred years. So, in the 1892 edition of the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland, snappy, 
The the Reverend James O'Laverty recounts finding a lump that, I'm quoting, still retains the mark of the hands and fingers of the ancient dame who pressed it into its present shape. And again, quote, it tastes somewhat like cheese. So, um... Oh, he tasted it! He tasted it! He put it in his mouth. He did. Uh, bog butter. Why butter and why bogs? Okay, so pretend for a moment that you're living about 4,000 years ago in Ireland. I'm trying so hard not to accidentally break out into an Irish accent and say Ireland. Oh, okay. Pretend that you're living in Ireland. Oh, nope. Nope. Not doing it. Um, So butter is an incredibly valuable foodstuff because it's got a lot of fat, which maybe you might not otherwise be getting a lot of in your diet if you are not a rich person. Um, If you're just sort of a commoner, you're probably not eating a lot of meat. And if you are eating meat, it's probably meat that you're hunting. And uh, wild animals actually tend not to be terribly fatty. It sort of depends on the time of year. But um, also butter is delicious. So it's nutritionally important and uh, you use it to cook with. You can use it to um, treat burns. It doesn't heal burns, but um, it can help sort of in the same way that lotion helps your skin. It's, you know, it's oily. Um, and so I put a <laughs> cornstarch sludge on a sunburn last week. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Did it work? <laughs> Is it cornstarch? What was it made of? It was just like cornstarch and water, which like has the consistency it's of quicksand. A, it's a non-Newtonian so solution. So I just ended up like, I mean, I just like poked it the whole time it was on my tummy because I had a bad tummy burn. Oh no. I know. But did it help your tummy burn? It, it made it feel better, but I don't think it did anything to help. <laughs> well, that's the important thing is how you feel. Butter. So this is, was, this was cow butter. It was cow butter. Yeah. Uh, okay. There were cows in this hypothetical 4,000 years ago, Ireland. Um, okay. And so that's, um, that's the Neolithic. Yeah. Is it the Neolithic there? Um, it's, it's definitely. Okay. So it's still like a, a fairly metals. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't think it's bronze okay. age. I'm not right, so right. great so, on my more recent yeah. history. For Neither, me, 4,000 years ago is recent. Yeah. Right. Right. But, Okay. Well, I just, cause you mentioned a part about like being a commoner. Oh, would I just it, sort of meant like. It, it wouldn't necessarily be a matter of like stratification. No, so, like, necess- the haves not and have not It's just like resource scarcity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so would you be storing that bog butter in said bog for when there were fewer resources? That's the theory. Um, there are also some um, hypotheses that these lumps of butter may have been offerings to whatever gods were worshipped at the time. So bogs were sort of dark, mysterious, spiritual places. Um, but it's it's sort of more likely that this was a method of preservation because back then refrigeration wasn't really an option. Even if it, it was cold right. during certain parts of the year, you know, eventually it would be a temperature where your butter wouldn't keep very well. Um, and the other option for keeping things fresh, salting, um, it was difficult to get salt in large quantities at that time. It's not like the process was industrialized or or um, sped up or, in any way. Right. Or that there were like a naturally occurring salt flats or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, area. Ireland yeah. is an island, so you well, can I'm get to the ocean. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, not necessarily. No, you depending not on where necessarily, you are. Right. Depending on where you are and, and were there even enough people to, you know, in that economy to have a specific right. group of people dedicated to making salt. Anyway, there wasn't a lot of salt. So, so people- somebody say, can you get some salt? And be like, what in this economy? <laughs> that is how old that joke is. But, uh, <laughs> um, so it's more likely that the bogs were a method of preservation, um, because of their unique properties. So like I said, a few minutes ago, peat is compressed plant matter. So plants die down in this kind of marshy environment and they get packed into this compact layer. And the important thing about the layer is that there's very little oxygen and uh, relatively high acidity. So that means that um, bacteria that would normally cause things like botulism that we don't want in our foods that we're trying to keep safe to eat um, can't survive. They, uh, botulism toxins need oxygen to survive and they need a relatively low acid environment. And the bogs, which are essentially these cold water swamps, also act as refrigerators. So I came across a University of Michigan study um, that reported in 1995 that meat left in a bog for two years was just as preserved as meat kept in a freezer. Um, It didn't specifically say whether this person ate the meat also just as preserved just as preserved. Like, 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 neither like, were preserved well like it's, yeah it's not a super great description of the, right. the meat involved um but i guess if you can think of a steak left in a freezer for two years it's probably fine if not great yeah and you you would eat it before the two years were up I, because I so. you would need it you would need it whenever the season in which you're Hunting these things right. has passed. Right. So um, the point is that your butter was there waiting for you as long as you remembered where you'd buried it. So um, peat bogs are such good environments for preserving organic matter that they've known they've been known to almost perfectly mummify corpses. Um, the oldest one that we currently know about is a preserved skeleton called the Kelbjerg woman, um, which may or may not be pronounced like that. And that dates to about 8,000 BC, so 10,000 years ago. Well, she can't correct you. No, she can't. But, um, you know, in in the event that we have listeners in um, Denmark, where I believe that skeleton is from. Sorry, Denmark. Yeah, Um, I think it's, yeah. So other bodies are so well-preserved that they retain their skin and their internal organs. So there's one called the Toland Man, and he had his skin intact, and he was found in a bog that I'm going to try really hard to pronounce. It's called the Bjeldskovdal bog in Denmark um, and is considered by some to be the most well-preserved body ever found from prehistoric times. So um, he's about 2,400 years old. So from about 400 BC. Um, we are definitely going to do a whole episode on bog bodies at some point in the yep. future. So get hype for that. Um, get hype. Get hype. <laughs> so, so that's bog butter and bog bodies. It was probably stashed to preserve it. And whether the people left the area or didn't remember where the butter was or, I get it. uh, you know, um, we find it or, today. or maybe they, they donated to some like bog goddess. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was an yeah. offering like, please. Please let the hunt be good this year. Please let us continue to produce delicious butter. Um, oh, what if there was a butter god, like specifically? 
Nice. I don't know. Um, would you, like do you would you eat bog butter? Like, would you try it? Yeah. Yeah, you would. Would someone have to pay yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. No. Because what I've read is that it, it's a little bit like Parmesan. Like, it has kind of a, a, a stinky feet smell, but it tastes okay. Just in uh, terms of running the numbers, most things won't kill you if you eat them. Uh, okay, listeners. <laughs> disclaimer here. Dear, dear listeners, oh, yeah, 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 please yeah, don't yeah, just yeah, eat like, everything assuming it won't kill you. Oh, I said, I said most, yeah. Okay. But, like, yeah, in the event that you find bog butter. Bring it to a museum. Um, don't eat it. Yeah, so that's the thing that, like, before we, like, Let's put a pin in this disclaimer. So this guy dug it up uh-huh. and was like, I'm going to take this to a museum. Well, because he maybe he must have seen that it was old and was like. I don't think that if I dug. If I were like if I were digging in a swamp near my house and I found like I think maybe I'd take it to the police if anybody. It. The fact that if it was I, like, in found Ireland, something like unrecognizable. Well, okay, that's unrecognizable is the key word there because they in that area, or at least in Ireland, in the boggy areas of Ireland, they had been finding bog butter for two hundred plus years. So, sort of in the public consciousness, it must be sort of there that. Oh, okay. And yeah. sort of, okay. and he's a peat cutter, like that's his job. So those are the I people guess, yeah. that usually find the bog butter. So probably. Yeah, I guess that that would be, like, an occupational hazard, yeah. Hazard? Benefit? Uh, Occupational interesting uh, day. And so, okay, is there any tradition of bog butter? Like, is that's not, like, a method of preparation or anything like that. You're not aging it? No. Are there any, like, you know, movements or anything? Because, (laughs) like, like, whole food bog butter? I mean, like. Like people are getting like super into yeah, like fermented foods and yeah. yeah. And so like, I'm all about like reconnecting with like the Neolithic revolution in that way and like fermenting stuff and like, I don't know if we you know. know, like I don't, um, so I yeah, know so that I people just wonder have now, if like people do that. People do, but the only instances that I've come across are people trying to replicate the bog butter just to see if the butter will still be good in right. X number of years. And again, I want to put a disclaimer here because making your own fermented food, bog butter, kimchi, whatever you want to make is extremely easy to do. You just sort of bury it in the ground and let it go. But you have to be really, really careful um, when you do that to make sure you know what you're doing and that you're doing it safely so that you don't accidentally grow things like botulism because it can make you yeah, really, really yeah. sick and you can you can get very sick and it's, it's even um, killed a few people. So... Yeah. Listeners. Oh, it, def- it definitely can be. And it's like canning. So it's like anything. I don't know if listeners can much, but it's the same idea. Like, sure everything needs to be, ah, uh, like it has to, it's a matter of like things being sterile. And so yeah. I sometimes am like kind of loosey goosey about these things. Cause I'm like, whatever humans have survived this long. And so I'm not always the best about that. I mean, humans um, have survived this long, but me, specifically. but not this specific human. Yeah, yeah I know. And yeah. then I thought about like, Oh, like, uh, yeah, so no, I've given a lot of thought to this, but... Me too, um, but also I have a very delicate tummy, like on the best of days, so um, yeah, my and interest had... in home bog butter is minimal. Would So you wouldn't eat bog butter? I don't know. Like, if okay. I had proof, like if I had someone say, microbiologically, this is fine, I would definitely oh, like, taste it. it. Okay. Yeah, but I um, think... I, I think I wouldn't like it. I don't know, actually, because I really like cheese. Yeah, I would go for it. 
Um, I wouldn't necessarily go for it like in an area where I didn't have access to like medical care. Um, Fortunately, they have hospitals in but, you know, now. <laughs> well, no, like, like if I were like 40 miles out from somewhere and I wouldn't just like shove oh, yeah, it in no. my face, no. I would like, so, and like, See, and then be like, it was a lot better. Oh, and then you eat it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I've definitely like, you know. Foraged? No. Well, yeah. But also just like, I've licked stuff I've excavated. Yeah. Okay. Well. We like, can talk about excavation practices on a different yeah, episode. <laughs> but it's the same. It's like the same idea yeah, of like tasting versus. I get it. Yeah. 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 And like you're eating history. Like how. It's a part Mind of blowing is that. Oh, Lord, I know. Right. Oh, God. But it already is the because you're breathing in the air. Me. It's just like it just makes you feel like you're so part of something bigger than yourself. Whatever you need to get a thrill, bud. Oh, um, yeah. And like sometimes it's eating 4,000 4, years old. Oh my God. You want to talk about eating something else that's real old? You want, you want to talk about honey? Um, yeah, I'm not personally a fan of bee vomit, but I get that it is significant in a lot of ways. All right. People. Some um, people just like honey, but Oh no, I, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Um, I, I mean, I respect it. I respect the hustle. Um, yeah, the bees got to work real hard. I, well, let's talk about some of the the archaeology of honey. Um, so we've known for a super long time that humans have worked with bees for thousands of years. Um, supposedly, honey was found in King Tut's tomb, but in my research, I haven't been able to track down a reliable source for that. So there are articles from both Smithsonian Magazine and National Geographic that both just say, Something like, while excavating Egypt's famous pyramids, archaeologists have found pots of honey in an ancient tomb, but then they don't have any citations and there's no, like, primary literature. So I am skeptical. What, like, you're skeptical that, like, pots of honey have been excavated? I'm skeptical that specifically they were in King Tut's tomb. Um, but oh, I, have, okay. I have no doubt that pots of honey have been excavated. There was so there was a one point where in some class, our TA was babysitting us because I think our professor wasn't there. Okay, for some reason, um, uh, and the TA college. was just like holding the door so that we didn't run away <laughs> exactly fifteen minutes after class was supposed to start. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were like, "Oh, tell us about excavations. Tell us about like working in the field. Oh my god, because you know we're all children because we're. I think this was in baby archaeology too." Oh, how old were you? I was 17. Oh, okay. <laughs> so really before your archaeological experiences. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was just What's learning. Like? Um, yeah. And so that's what basically we were like. And it was, it very much felt like we were being babysat by a TA who was just like, Ugh, what do I do with you? Um, okay. And so she, she was telling us stories from her excavations and her friend's excavations and just like the crazy stuff that you find. And we're like, what's the craziest thing that anybody's gotten? And so she tells a story of like her friend's excavation, which, you know. Secondhand information. Is, yeah. So we're getting into like some apocryphal information here. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah, so, um, so like, I know this girl and her team and they were excavating and I don't know if it was in, I'm going to, I'm going to add another layer. I'll say it was in Egypt. 
So they were excavating in Egypt and, um, they found this, you know, they got into this like room or this, this cache or something. And there were really well-preserved, uh, foodstuffs. And so something that, um, that happens a lot and you probably know this, that like the, there's this, this line that, a, that an object crosses after it's been taken out of the ground mm-hmm. where like when you're digging, you're just kind of like, you've got bare hands, you're just like kicking around, it's in the dirt, whatever people kind of toss stuff around. But the second it goes into the lab, it like becomes it's a this sacred like, object. It's a sacred object and everybody wears white gloves and like, you can't have pins near it. And so it just, it passes this threshold. And so everybody, like everybody was looking at it and they, like, they're looking at this pot and it was like an intact uh, vessel of some kind. And they open it up and they're like, Oh my God, there's honey in there. And so everybody with, before they like have to turn it over before, like basically their boss finds out, they all stick their fingers in it Ugh. and they all taste it. So they all taste the honey. And so they send that off to the lab and they, um, send off all the other stuff that they find. I hope it turns uh, they, out they, they ate something really gross that wasn't honey. Well, hang on. Okay. The story hasn't ended yet, Anna. Okay. And so they, they, they record everything, they process it, like they, you know, do all that, send it off to the lab. Uh, the next week, the lab calls them back and they're like, hey, that stuff you sent last week was amazing. Like, that was so cool. Um, like, really interesting stuff. Like, we're really excited about that room you found. Um, and like, we've got a few more questions about the context of the burial. And they're like, what? Like what burial? And they're like the burial. You sent, oh, us, no. you sent us a mummy. And they were like, you what now? And they had stuck their fingers in a mummified infant uh, and it was a burial jar. And the infant was mummified in honey. And no, so no, everybody no, had no, eaten no, baby no, honey. No, 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 no dead baby honey. No. Oh God. That ended way weirder than I, could've that's thought. my honey story <gasps> this is the honey story i've been telling you about for weeks that i refuse to tell you <sighs> because <laughs> like listeners should know that from the second anna mentioned like ancient honey i'm like oh yeah the honey story and like you did I not see, know what i was talking I about see why and, you wouldn't tell me and and now much like the pot that we lick it's <laughs> part of me now yeah 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 oh, it's in your bones wow Oh, they ate a baby. I know, right? Cool. Yeah, Give me a so, second. Um, Let me recover for a but, second. Oh, dead baby. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's for Anna to go bark. But um, Yards. But the the idea, sort of sort of the, the kernel of of truth in that is that um it is possible to consume things. Uh, some things are fit for consumption, I should say, or safe for consumption mm-hmm. um, if you excavate them from the right types of environments. And those are um, environments like – well, they're environments that are in- extremely inhospitable to um, Bad processes bacteria. that will make things go rancid. Yeah, yeah so you have like bogs, um, frozen things. Oh, my God. Okay, uh, another gross story about people eating things we're going to have – we have to talk about at some point in the future – um, mammoth steaks. Yes. Mammoth steaks. And like that period where like, yeah, like folks working in the Arctic, like they kept finding mammoths and they started like partying down on mammoth steaks at their like freezer burned mammoth steaks, um, at their meetings. Again, I think it was in the eighties. A barf. 
I know. Why do I know all this? Like, I don't know. But like, this is my knowledge immensely. There have been uh, reports at some point in the, you know, the past 15 years of reading something um, of mm-hmm. seeds germinating. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We'll have to find and, that and and either do an episode about it or put the link up on uh, our Facebook page. Um, yeah. So even though I'm, it might not be as, this is like getting back to our first episode and how like, it's not always like as like edgy or sexy, but it's sort of like, like you can do like amazing stuff, but it's not like you can find amazing stuff, but not quite as amazing and shocking as baby honey. No. Well, I have, I do have a story about, um, finding some amazing information, not, oh, not baby about, honey. About honey? About honey. Okay. Um, well first, um, so both bees and honey are depicted in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and in art. So, uh, in Naples, in Annapoli, um, oh, there's in yeah. the Naples National Archaeology Museum, there's a, a small pottery cup with hieroglyphs inked onto the side, and they translate as the following cumin, set milk, and honey. So I have no idea what set milk is, but my idea is that the milk curdled. Like it's set milk as in it, like it's set solid. So any Egypt experts, yogurt experts, milk experts, shoot us an email, thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. Um, So in any case, those same hieroglyphs appear in a much older document called the Berlin Medical Papyrus. And um, there's more information included with that inscription. And it tells us that this combination of ingredients is meant to be a cough remedy. So... The cool thing about that is that honey actually has known antimicrobial properties. So, like, if you had a cough, maybe it would soothe your throat. Maybe it's antibacterial. It couldn't have hurt. And if you're combining, like, curdled milk and cumin, maybe adding honey would, would make it taste better. I like the idea of, like a, like, a slightly sweet spiced yogurt. Yeah, like if you when like you put nice it dip. like that, you're really you're selling it to me much better than what I was thinking of, which was like nasty cottage cheese. Yeah, so that maybe uh, that'll come back as a holistic cough remedy uh, sometime soon. It sounds delicious. Yeah. Maybe it'll just come back yeah, as like I mean, an appetizer. Yeah, I kind of want to whip it up and uh, let me know how that goes. Serve it with. I will. Peanut, well, peanut yeah, chips. Maybe, uh, yeah, the next time we get together, I'll make that and some, like, lavash crackers. I'll make sure to have a cough so that we can tell whether it, <clears throat> whether or not it cures coughs. Um, so in 2015, a study was published that showed that humans have been using uh, beeswax, so maybe also honey, although, although that's not confirmed, for at least 9,000 years. So this is really cool. Um, so researchers from the University of Bristol in the U.K., analyzed pottery from prehistoric vessels from Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and they found chemical evidence of beeswax. So people might have been using the wax for cooking, or it might have been part of some kind of cosmetic, um, or because wax burns very well, it might have been fuel for fires. So we don't know if these people in Anatolia were actively keeping bees or if they were collecting the honey from wild hives, but we do know that... So, yeah. I looked that up. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I looked, yeah, because I was like, what? Like, because that sounds like the most metal thing, like going out and collecting honey. Um, There's actually a WikiHow article about how to harvest a beehive from the wilderness. Yeah. Oh, my God. And there is. Heard of Himalayan mad honey? No. All right. Let's put a pin in that and it'll be part of our our bonus content. (laughs) 
It's this bonkers honey. Okay. We'll talk about it. It's called it's called okay. mad honey. It's found in the Himalayas. Anyway, um, the, well, yeah, yeah, do it. Talk about it. What are you saying? No, I I was saying, um, yeah. So I had no idea how one goes about this, but you can find out again. You know, disclaimer. Oh, yeah. WikiHow yes. has an article safe. about how to go out into the wilderness, and it's um, it seems to be written from a perspective of wisdom, hard won wisdom. Much stung wisdom. Uh, yes, Ed, it was just very endearing, but I I wasn't sure um, how one actually goes about doing that. But step it doesn't one, seem ow. that step two. Ow. Well, no, it's like it's like step one: take a shower because they don't want to smell your gross self. That's like yeah. Which I was just like, are we going on a date with the bees, or are we just taking the honey? Oh, like, I'm pers- not sure. What if you persuade them to give you the honey? You, you nag them into giving over the honey. Oh, that's just rude. No, I was going to say you romance the bee. You you sweet talk them. I mean, tomato, tomato. Anyway. um, I'm single. (laughs) Hear that, listeners? She's single. But but there is a, like, long, long history of of beekeeping. Right. Yeah? Uh, Yes. So one of the earliest places where we do know that people were truly keeping bees is 2,500 years ago. In what is now northern Italy. So, again, the land of our people. So, last year in 2017, archaeologists working at the site of Forcello. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's going to happen every time. They were working at the site of Forcello, and they un- uncovered the charred and melted remains of honey, honeycombs, and honeybees. Oh. A bee conflagration? Yeah, well, it was a workshop that had burned down um, between 510 and 495 BC. So, um, yeah, I, I hear that beeswax um, is a great fuel. It is a great fuel, but it's none of your beeswax. Gonna give you a minute. Anyway, um, they tested the chemical content of, of the beeswax and all the material that had burned. They also found uh, little bits of pollen in that material. And they analyzed it to determine not only the composition of Etruscan honey, but um, by the yeah, way, and the Etruscans yes, were the folks that were living there. Yes, the Etruscans that time. lived in northern Italy before the Romans, um, and yeah. we don't actually know a whole lot about the Etruscans, but they were really cool, and I think we should do an episode about them sometime. Yeah, like like super cool, like one of the. Um, like we don't really understand their language, but they were sort of contemporaneous to a small degree with um, sort of the start of the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. And um, they just kind of got supplanted. Yeah. Um, they, or, yeah or, or colonized. It's there. It's really interesting stuff. Um, but didn't know about these bees. No. So they, um, they could figure out what the honey was made of so they could tell with the pollen what types of plants the bees were collecting the pollen from. So today, modern northern Italy, um, bees tend to feed on non-native plants that have since been introduced to the region. But during the Etruscan period, bees were getting pollen from aquatic sources like water lilies and wild grapevines that you find along shorelines. And this made a kind of grapevine honey that is completely unknown today. So bees don't eat those plants anymore. They don't eat that pollen anymore. But here is the cool part. These plants are not abundant around Forcello, the site where the workshop was found. So the experts 
believe that the Etruscan beekeepers had bees on boats. Bees on like rafts oh my God. that like hives on rafts that moved along the river. Like a bee barge? A bee barge. They had a bee ferry. So they they had the bees on the boat and they would go up and down the river and the bees would would do their bee thing with the river plants and then they would harvest the honeycombs and take it back to the workshop to extract the honey. And I guess the grapevine honey was particularly tasty or they liked they liked what was made from the plants along the water better than whatever plants were inland. But this is so cool because this is exactly um, what modern beekeepers do today on an industrial commercial scale. So the almonds, the roasted Trader Joe's almonds that you love so much, the reason that those almonds grow is because bees on trailer trucks go from almond orchard to almond orchard. And I mean, the bees are taken from orchard to orchard. They're not driving. In a bee the convoy. They, yeah, a bee convoy. Um, a, a, a bee line. Oh, mm. nice. Nailed it. <laughs> not happy about it. This is, this is really interesting. Like I, like so fascinating, like such fascinating stuff that you find out from the archeological record and mm-hmm. from just like the material evidence. Um, and when we first talked about doing an episode on on bees and honey, um, other than my honey story, uh, the other thing Still that I thought not, about. I haven't recovered. Okay. Well, sorry. It's going to get worse. Distract maybe. me with something um, else. Okay. Okay. I'm going to distract you with, with something else that when you talked about bees, I was like, oh, my God, like in Virgil. And because um, I, I remember distinctly in my Latin class. Um, Nerd. I know. And I took Latin too. I'm. The pot, yeah. the pot calling the kettle a nerd. I know. <laughs> um, when you mentioned bees the first time, what I thought of was uh, in my Latin class when we were uh, reading the Aeneid and we were talking about Virgil. And um, because I don't know if you remember this, but Virgil just like loves him some, some bee similes. I don't necessarily remember that. Okay. Well, he talks about like people, uh, because he talks about people constructing the city. I think it was, uh, Carthage maybe, okay. um, was being constructed and everybody like they have their role and they're Aww. busy like bees and all everybody this stuff. Everybody was so, a busy little bee. Exactly. Which uh, don't worry. We made that joke in my class. And we, and you talk about how, um, in particularly in Roman literature and poetry and stuff, it starts to be used as like a political metaphor. So they have this sense of how bees work mm-hmm. and like, obviously people in like people around the world, but people in the, what became by the, the first century AD, uh, the, um, sort of the sphere of knowledge. If people have been, I don't know, raising bees and, um, and, growing i don't know do you grow honeycombs i don't know how like, no, the bees do. form them and then you harvest no, them I, but no i know i know the the mechanism but like what do you call it do you harvest you just you just harv. okay so while you're harvesting honey for the past several centuries somebody knows what's going on um but the thing that i remembered from my latin class is this um this concept this like like really like dark concept of the um the bugonia that's what it is um it sounds like a flower yeah yeah it's not the flowers that like you get your grandma for uh mother's day the begonia. but it's a 
Bagonia. Yeah. No, it's the Bugonia. Mm. And so it's a, the word is formed from the Greek bos, bull, mm-hmm. yep. and, and gune, progeny. Okay. And so it Bull means, progeny. Bull progeny. Huh. Yeah. So it's like bull, bull born. Um, and so it's, it's <laughs> something that I remembered from uh, my Latin class. And so I was, I'm, I was like, oh, I got to look this up because it's a really messed up thing. Um, and it's this idea that was pretty pervasive um, around like, sort of the, the origin of bees and how you get a bee. Oh, because um, they didn't know, like, bees or insects and they lay eggs. They just well, like, thought they came no, from... You've got, you've got, like... So you've got people that understand how bees work, and then you've got philosophers and poets who, when it comes to bees, are just, like, stone-cold dum-dums. <laughs> and um, so there's this... It's This is something that's really interesting to me as somebody who thinks about, like, what's in history versus the archaeological record. There's this huge disconnect between this knowledge that isn't captured through historical sources because it's just like, you know, Joe beekeeper, like telling like his son and his employees. Like, yeah. It's just like everyday stuff. It's not something a poet writes about. Yeah. And so you've got these poets who come up with these crazy ideas. And so, um, the Bugonia I'm going to hit in a second. Um, but it comes out of this, this like storied tradition of people not knowing how bees work. Um, starting with Aristotle in the fourth century uh, before the common era. And so Aristotle in his generation of animals, um, he discusses the three dominant theories about like bee production. Okay. Bee production, (laughs) bee Uh, reproduction. Yeah, no, I got it. Yeah. Okay, good. Just, just checking. Um, so, so there, there are these three ideas that you, that they, they come from somewhere else where they're either just like spontaneously generated or some <laughs> other animal gives birth to them. It's a bee. Yeah. So, so either like bees just appear or two, they actually reproduce mm-hmm. or three little column a little column B. Okay. And so Aristotle using his, using the like scientific logic that we, that like dominated scientific and philosophical thought for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, he determined that first of all, there's not a queen, there's a king. Mm -hmm. So the king produced other Kings and workers because the workers, the worker bees obviously could not be female because they carried a weapon. Yeah. That checks out. And like ladies don't do that. Uh, but, but these, these bros have a stinger and, so the workers produced drones and the drones were the ladies and they didn't, they just didn't do a whole lot. And so drones were, are, were compared to like in philosophy and literature compared to like lazy dudes or ladies. That's um, rude. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which, which is limiting to say the least. Um, and so he decided that that's how they come about because obviously like an animal is not going to take care of an animal. It didn't bother giving birth to. No, uh, so he's okay. Ooh. <laughs> he's a like he's yeah he's a he's a big softy that Aristotle yeah I just um, and so give him he, a big old hug and so so he he came up with that idea um, and so he he committed that to writing so he he told everybody what was up when it came to bees um, and then Pliny um, in natural history um, he brought he he attacked the bee issue also and. He, talking about how like he thought that getting like 
um, the, the most likely explanation is, um, that baby bees came out of flowers. Oh, uh, but he saw some problems with that theory. I mean, I do too, I mean, but it's really cute. And not cute. Like, like maybe like baby bees, pollen, same, same, unclear. Hmm. Um, but Pliny also talked about how animals exist in two forms, wild and domesticated. Mm-hmm. But he does admit, apparently the bee was just a real, really tough for him in his natural history. Because he admitted that some animals like the bee um, aren't really either. So there's this idea, at least in Pliny's circle, that bees aren't really tamed. They're not really wild. Like cats. Sort of, like cats, yeah. And we'll talk about cats and how they aren't actually domesticated um not in this episode but not in this episode because we aren't like digging cats up out of bogs no but um um, stay tuned yeah but only a hundred years after aristotle like blew bees out of the water laid down uh, the bee law yeah the um this guy uh uh nicander of colophon um that's not a real name Nicander? Nicander? Yeah, doesn't that that means like that means like victorious man. That's his that's his name. Nicander. Yeah. Wow. That's um, um yeah. Subtle. I know. <laughs> well, like his mom called him that. Okay. He's gonna be a big strong boy. Oh. Um yeah, so big strong boy of Colophon. Um he's the one that described the Bugonia the first time. Um and it's a ritual. So he describes the the Egyptian variation. There's allegedly all different types of ways you can go about getting some bees. Um, but the, the ritual fundamentally is where an ox is killed in a, like a quite violent manner. Um, so I'm not going right. to trouble everyone with that. Um, but what you do is you, you seal it up. You like stop it up like all what? the orifices. What? Oh, God. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, with like bitumen, so pitch, tar. Um, and, and some linen, and then you keep it in a shed for three weeks. I mean, the linen's a nice touch. Um, and so after three weeks, um, three weeks of just being in what kind of sounds like a shed. A stink house. Yes, but it's all sealed up. And then you open the door and 11 days later, bees. Ew. That's how you get bees. Um, and so this came up in Virgil's Georgics. If that's how you get bees, I don't want bees. Right. And so, um, so you have, um, and it comes up a lot as like a metaphor for rebirth and renewal. Okay. So sort of out of, um, because there also were ideas that this, this could be naturally occurring, like the, the, the bees come out. And so there have been, um, interesting theories of, of like trying to like, uh, determine sort of like etiological studies, trying to figure out like what, this could have been like, are they talking, do they think they see bees when actually they're seeing a certain type of, um, insect that is, yeah, like a certain type of fly or some kind of like carrion beetle sort of thing. Like what what were they actually seeing versus describing? But, uh, also uh, something else you see is kind of troubling is people that read historical sources think that people in, um, the classical world didn't know anything about bees. But if you are keep if if we have if we find which we have beehives and um, yeah we have the that, physical evidence like, of beekeeping yeah like terracotta wicker like diff- very like all kinds of of bee cages um, so obviously somebody knew 
but Ooh, Airbnbs. Yep. But so, so it's so you don't want to you don't want to believe everything you read is sort of the lesson there because right. people knew people knew where bees came from. Uh, but but Aristotle but, just wanted to have thinky thoughts about it. Yeah. So Aristotle wanted to think his thoughts, and then Nicander of Colophon is describing this like not so approach to getting bees, and Virgil includes it. You see it in uh, you see it in a lot of um, Greek and Roman literature and it's it's like a because I, it's a you know a, like a powerful image i suppose like not necessarily in a good way but uh when you when we start moving out of the class world into late antiquity so like the end of the roman empire mm-hmm. um this guy florentinus um wrote his geoponica and he describes it in the most well duh fashion um and he says listen up dum dum yeah. If any further evidence is necessary to enhance the faith in things already proved, you may behold that carcasses decaying from the effect of time and tepid moisture change into small animals. Okay. Um, go and bury slaughtered oxen. The fact is known from experience that rotten entrails produce flower-sucking bees who, like their parents, roam over pastures bent upon work and hopeful of the future. A buried warhorse produces the hornet. Well, naturally. Right. And so you've got like those like really like that's stupid. Like that's not right. Like that's and then there also are um you see in, in poetry and, and literature um this idea that horses produce wasps. It sort of um, seems like we know that oxen produce bees and horses are a slightly more warlike animal, so they must yeah, produce yeah, yeah. the extra stingy bees. Yeah. And so it's it's just the the sort of this total disconnect from real life. Like talk about being in your ivory tower and like being some kind of out of touch elitist like the, to the point of like I write my poetry about where bees come from. They come from dead cows. But this this shows up elsewhere too and it's in um it's in the Bible and I couldn't find that factual tome. It made it in there. <laughs> Well, no, it's a riddle. Um, so it, it shows up in the book of Judges um, as part of a riddle that Samson solves. Okay. And according, and like, I, I looked it up. Um, Tell me, and give me the, the riddle. Okay. And well, you're going to know what the answer is. Because <laughs> it's, but, um, so in the King James Version, the English that Jesus spoke, um, out of the eater came forth meat and out of the strong came forth sweetness. Look, if I didn't know. I don't think I would have gotten it. So good job, Samson. So the answer is bees. Um, Because so there's like a bee, like a lion carcass and there's like bees coming out of it. And Samson, like, I don't know, was wandering around wishing that he could, I think, marry the daughter. I don't remember. Um, But this may sound um, eerily familiar to some uh, British listeners or listeners from the Commonwealth because an image of bees busting on out of a dead lion is on the label of Lyle's golden syrup, uh, which I never noticed. And I have eaten Lyle's right. golden syrup. Like I've looked at the and label, so, but I never realized it. I was just like, Oh, it's a lion. I never realized. Right. Like, but, like, yeah. When, and that's like some kind of branding. But when I had seen it before, um, I, it must've been like while I was abroad, uh, but seeing there be like, why is there a rotting lion on that? And so, and on the label, it says out of the strong came forth sweetness. Yeah. I'd be like, is that a good thing? Like this, 
This like, is a delicious this. lion. So it's it's interesting how, like, talk about the longevity of a motif. Yeah. And, like, for as long as, yeah, for as long as we have been keeping bees and harvesting honey, there have been people who do not even know how bees happen. Um, and I just, I just thought that was fun. I just thought that was, like, a fun little little button. Yeah. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Slash sorry about that dead baby. Uh, thank you, and we're sorry. Thank you, and we're sorry. And you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you find your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook on The Dirt Podcast. Uh, tweet at us on Twitter. We are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.